This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, we welcome Andy Hargraves. Hi there. Hi, Andy. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Andy is the director of Shanin, uh, Change Engagement uh, and Innovation in Education at the University of Ottawa in Canada, and Emeritus Professor at Boston College. He's a former president of the International Congress of School Effectiveness and Improvement, uh, former advisor in education to the Premier of Ontario, current advisor to the First Minister in Scotland. He's very well published, more than 30 books, and with eight outstanding writing awards. And in 2015, Boston College gave him its Excellence in Teaching with Technology Award. His most recent books are Collaborative Professionalism that he wrote with Michael O'Connor. And in 2018, uh, Moving, a Memoir of Education and Social Mobility. And uh, recently, uh, Five Paths of Student Engagement with Dennis Shirley. Andy. You are a busy man, and you're a hiker extraordinaire, uh, and are powering through the Appalachian Trail. I understand. Yeah, I'll be out there again next week with my uh, colleague, uh, friend, and uh, and brother in arms, uh, Dennis Shirley, down in southern Pennsylvania. Nice. So, Joel, as you can see, we 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 have lots to talk with Andy about. Um, uh, one that I'd like to I'd like to touch on at some point is balance. You can do all that writing, Andy, and be all those places and run organizations and still find time to uh, be a human being that uh, looks after themselves and gets out in nature. So I'd love to learn more about that at some point too. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> I mean, why not? You already brought it up. Why why not uh, start there? Do you think like yeah? How do you think about your relationship between being a human being in the world and your uh, and your work well a very precise answer to that is in my late 60s i decided to retire early from boston college a little earlier than most of my colleagues to be honest and the most compelling reason was our grandchildren we have three grandchildren three of our five grandchildren in ottawa in canada and my wife and I wanted to be back with them before both they and we were too old to enjoy it. And when many of us, Joel and Rod, approach retirement, many dark existential fears cross our minds. Uh, some are to do with, will I have enough to live off? Some are to do with, with what will I do? And some are to do with, who will I be? And so I, I began a conversation with, uh, with my wife and friends and colleagues. And I said, look, I'm going to the frozen north of Ottawa in the 159th ranked faculty of education in the world, where I'll be one day a week. Uh, it's simply that, by the way, because it's a bilingual faculty. So lots of its citations don't count almost because they're in French. And um, perhaps I'll disappear. And everything will dry up. And people said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're famous. People will, as soon as they know you're free, they'll come knocking at your door, wanting you to do all kinds of things. But I, I read a great book a few years ago, which is part of, we make use of it in a new book I've done with Dennis Shirley on well-being that will be out in uh, December. 
and it's by Oliver Berkman, and it's called The Antidote, a book, a book for people who don't like positive thinking. And and one of the chapters in The Antidote is is about the importance of worst case scenarios. So I said, look, I really need to think about the worst case scenarios. So so I did. I spent several weeks imagining uh, my work being over. Uh, nobody calls, no applause, a blank calendar. How would I feel? I thought about that a lot. And, and at the end of it, took a while, I concluded I'd feel fine. Uh, I felt I'd had a 40 year or so uh, career. I've had a lot of impact. Some of it's even been good. Um, I've, uh, uh, and so I can enjoy that and, and be satisfied with that. I have a family who loves me and I love them. Our grandson's coming around any minute and straight after this, I'll be spending some time with him. He's uh, nine years old. I, uh, I love to hike and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just hike more. That That's good. Um, and I carry on writing. Nobody would read it, but it, but it wouldn't stop me writing. So I'd still enjoy the writing side of it. And and so the the, the first place to have balance is not in your time; it's in your head. And and not all my identity rests on my professional accomplishments or the absence of them, though they're very very important. And uh, most of the things I find myself engaged in. Um, are meaningful and, and purposeful for me. In retirement, so-called retirement or non-retirement, uh, this is a bit easier to do uh, when uh, you don't have to grade papers anymore. Uh, you don't have to be in meetings with people you can't stand. Uh, and by the way, this is not a criticism of any institution. In every institution and community, there's always somebody you can't stand and, and just as probably somebody who can't stand you. And um, and and so it is, I'm aware with the community I've helped to create here in, in Ottawa and become part of, that things are easier for me than they are for people who are thinking about tenure and promotion and their journal articles and their next grant. And so I, I do understand now it's easier to say that in the slightly relaxed way that, that I do. But I mean, how is it for you? You know, what, what, what does it look like? Uh, it wasn't always so easy when our children were small. I never slept. I used to park the car on the way to work in a little lay-by to, to tip back the seat for 30 minutes because it was the only guaranteed 30 minutes of sleep I could ever I could ever get. Uh, so it's not always been as laconic as it as it sounds now. I, I have also done that. That when you're at school, people need you, and when you're at home, people need you. And in between, you're in traffic. So when is your time by yourself? Your time is if you, you know, pull pull to the side. I remember once, I'm assuming that my mother-in-law is not going to listen to this podcast, but I remember once I had an arrangement to play uh, tennis with a friend and he lived between where I worked and my home. And so there was just enough time to finish work, go play tennis with him and get home and time to you know, pick up with my childcare responsibilities and all that. And, um, but my mother-in-law was watching my kids in the afternoon and I wasn't convinced that she would think that she watching my kids while I play tennis was really the right use of her time. So I would finish playing tennis 
And then I would drive around the corner and I would put my work clothes back on and put my work shoes back on so that I could walk in the house. And I'm sure there are people like looking out a window thinking that I'm like having an affair or something, but uh, actually <laughs> uh, just trying to get in a little uh, a little tenants. So, so this is our shabby secrets of what I've, we've been hiding all I've these years. That, I've been in that spot. What about you, Rod? You seem to live a, a well-adjusted life. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you two were just talking about sort of Boston things. Um, and the <laughs> But... Um, no, I, I I think it's been an interesting transition as Andy I too retired a couple of years ago, um, and thought I'd have more time for uh, hobbies and um, you know I'm a woodworker and a hiker and a cyclist and those kinds of things. Guitar player, uh, I say, uh, to, uh, attempt attempting to be a guitar player, and I found that uh, I was doing less of all those things after I retired because I didn't. I just thought they would happen naturally in spare time, and 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 uh, so we need to bring some structure back in, uh, to to schedule some of the not schedule, but to sort of try to find time for those things, uh, and and I'm still failing utter uh, uh, complete failure at um, at trying to schedule more time, um, but those are my boundaries that I got to sort out. On the other hand, I do less of the things I don't like, as you said, and more of the things I do like. So I don't mind being busy if it's stuff I want to do. It's uh, it's all good. There's also, uh, and I try to talk to other people, and I don't think we do enough of this in our profession. And I'm not just talking about academics, I'm talking about uh, superintendents as well. I have a, a good colleague of mine here who is uh, in Ontario, who is an Italian-American. Uh, his father is uh, pretty much illiterate as an Italian uh, immigrant, Italian laborer. And... Um, and, and he's had an incredible trajectory, far more stellar, I think, in, in many ways than mine, given where he came from. And I said, do you ever talk about this to your to your people? And he said, well, you know, I'm afraid of people will think I'm just glorifying my magnificent ascent and so on. And I said, well, it's not an argument for not talking about it. It's an argument for finding a way to talk about it so that it's meaningful for them, not 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 only meaningful for you and i think in academic life this is even more problematic we uh, apart from some subfields of narrative where frankly scholars overindulge their personal lives uh, they we, we tend to keep our lives our lives out of it and what this work means for us and who we've been and who we are and what who we've been and who we are means means for our work and i think as uh, teachers because writing is a kind of teaching we need to think a bit more about about how we do that the academics have a term for it called positionality but positionality is usually a, an apology for a long list of privileges that we have uh, that other people don't have that we want to clear out the way before we get on with our work and it's, it's a deeper connection than that and helps all of us hold the different parts of our lives together i think we certainly say when we talk about um, uh, young people in our schools, especially Indigenous youth up, up here in Canada, um, that we want them to bring their whole selves to school, uh, not not feel they have to tuck pieces of themselves away. Um, th their whole self is 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 who we'd like to see present, um, but we don't do that well enough with adults yet. That, that we want the whole self of of our adults to be to feel that they, they can be present and bring their whole selves uh, with them. And, and that includes um, 
everything about their lives. So, you know, uh, well, well said, Andy. I remember once I was teaching a, a course on, uh, which was supposed to be about research design. It was for doctoral students who were trying to produce dissertations. And it was a course where they could, you know, sort of workshop their work and we could develop it. And I thought it was going to be about statistics and inferences and so forth. And uh, I realized a couple of weeks in that um, that wasn't really what people wanted to talk about. What they wanted to talk about was they had come to graduate school with some real, actual social purpose. There were some things that they cared about in the world, and that had led the, them to some questions or some things that they wanted to find out more about. And they found that the longer that they were in graduate school, the more divorced those things were getting, what they were doing from who they were. And so what the course became about was about sort of how could you, who are you, what do you care about, and what kind of work could you do, and in what form and genre could you do it that would make those things compatible or aligned. And we built a sort of a triangle where there was you, your work, and some audience. And I think the argument was if you could get those three things in some alignment, things would go well for you in life, not just externally, but internally. And if they were misaligned, you know, maybe Andy in retirement, you could write for yourself, but graduate students probably need somebody out there to read what they're writing. So um, if you could, so maybe what you're trying to reach a practice audience, or maybe it's a policy audience, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, but the, but you have to be sort of central to this. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the purpose of of teaching and coaching in uh, in in graduate life in working with adults. Uh, I think our students don't always know what their purpose is when they come to us, but they're sort of searching or struggling with something. And sometimes it's a personal issue. I know people who've done PhDs because they hated their partners at home and couldn't stand them. So they do a PhD to escape from that. And I have one student who never finished a PhD because she found another partner. And, and I said, I can fight everything in getting you to finish your PhD, but I cannot fight happiness. That's that's just that's just beyond me. And and I think some people come, I remember uh, one woman who's a very senior scholar now, and uh, she's a black American, uh, immigrant black American. And, um, and, and when she, uh, she came as an adolescent and she taught, uh, she'd been teaching students uh, African-American students, so slave, in, slave inheritance, grown up in America, African-American students. And she thought because she was black that, that there'd be an instant uh, connection uh, b between them. And she found it really that there are different kinds of blackness, different, different kinds of culture. And she found it very hard and frustrating and in some ways a failure and, and came to Boston College uh, to deal with her pain i think and try and understand it and work through it and it, it it's led to a quite stellar career actually eventually but at one point i said you just have to sit this down get it off your chest there's a journal where you can write uh, academic autobiographies so you, sh you could so you could publish it and she did 
Um, so sometimes people know what the purpose is and we get those beautiful letters with graduate applications. Sometimes they're a bit too pro forma for, for our liking, I think. Uh, and sometimes people authentically don't know, but they're searching for something um, and they want to find out what it is and we can help them. So Andy, this is a, a, a great segue into, into maybe a bit of a conversation around your most recent um, uh, book around engagement. There's so many, you know, we've talked about why graduate students or uh, folks are engaged in their various learning practices. There's been a lot written around student engagement. Uh, it's well, well-traveled territory. Um, and yet uh, you and Dennis uh, decided to to travel that path again. What what was behind your thinking around around writing a, a a book on engagement? What was it that you what gaps did you see? What was the the niche that you wanted to enter into there? Well, the the two places to begin in answering that question are uh, first of all, uh, Dennis and I didn't sit in a corner somewhere and think of a new topic we could get funding for, and up pop student engagement. But rather, uh, a lot of our work is collaborative with uh, with educators in the field. I think you know that that Rob, because of especially the work I've done in Canada, and uh, America was at a point where it had put a lot of money into doing something about urban disadvantage and uh, issues of uh, race and inequality and so on in the, in the great cities of America, uh, but hadn't really done anything about rural disadvantage, and there are there, which is a huge part of, of uh, inequality within, within, particularly within America. This also applies in other countries as well. And so they threw quite a bit of money out uh, with, with federal grants. And they didn't really, frankly, know what to do with it. Some people think you should just adapt urban strategies for rural schools, which is totally nonsensical. But, but the, so the, there were very few strings with the money. And uh, a center in, the, in Portland, Oregon, the Northwest Comprehensive Center, uh, got, got a chunk of this money and decided what it wanted to do was to build a network of schools uh, to combat the isolation of uh, teachers in those schools and of the schools from each other. Uh, because uh, people in rural communities are doubly disadvantaged, not only by often poverty, uh, but also by, by isolation from, from resources, from networks, from, from other people. And they came to Dennis Shirley and I because by that point we'd, we'd help build uh, or renew uh, six or seven different networks, uh, including two in Canada, uh, one in Alberta, one in Ontario, uh, but also in England and in other places as well. And um, this wasn't an off-the-shelf network, so they weren't joining, they, they weren't getting a badge to, to join somebody's pre-existing network. They had to design it. So our job was to help them think about um, what, what you need to take into consideration when you're designing your network. And uh, perhaps there were two things that, that stuck out. One was we said, you need something to do. You can't just talk about things. And networks work well when there's a, a core practice that people value and that they come for. 
And they decided that would be what they called job-like groups. So they would meet physically twice a year and virtually in between. And kindergarten teachers work with kindergarten teachers, counsellors with counsellors, English teachers with English teachers, principals with principals on uh, developing a curriculum or other materials that, that they felt would be helpful for all their students. And, and another thing that we pointed out they needed to think about was what they would focus on. So the non-negotiable was they needed to do something about raising the achievement of these disadvantaged uh, students. And they decided intuitively, really, that what they wanted to focus on was engagement. So the practitioner theory of change was that the best way to increase achievement, particularly for students in disadvantaged circumstances, was not more grit, more uh, resilience, no more no excuses uh, environments, but really in some way or other, getting the kids engaged with their learning, their lives and their, their communities. And so uh, and we followed them. And uh, we're professors, so as much as we and our colleagues complain about this this job of ours, oh, the grind of tenure, the publications, the meetings, the, uh, it's a wonderful job because they pay you to read. They actually, they actually pay you quite a lot of money uh, to read stuff, uh, a lot, and, and to make sense of it for yourself and other people. So we went off to read the literature on student engagement, and there is a lot of it, as you say, including the monumental 840-page handbook of uh, student engagement. And we were struck by... Uh, two things. One, one there were there were some things they point out that we still hold on to. One is that uh, engagement is related to achievement, not always, but often, uh, and that there are th three components to it: uh, emotional, uh, how you feel about your work, your learning, uh, cognitive, how curious, how how absorbing it is, and behavioural. Are you there or are you not? Are you awake or are you not? Is your camera switched on or is it not? Um, that you know, these are the behavioural sides. Um, Pedro Nogueira and uh, lots of other people have really emphasised these these three. So we took a lot of that. And, and some of the psychological theories of engagement are, are quite widely used or touched upon by, by teachers. Uh, Mikhail Shimahaili's theories of flow, for example, or Abraham Maslow's ideas about uh, self-actualization and self-transcendence. Uh, uh, just really two examples, or all the work around from Harry Harlow onwards in the 1940s about intrinsic uh, motivations. So we talk a bit about these in the book, and we try to translate them for 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 general readers in a way. Uh, but the 840-page handbook of uh, of student engagement is frankly one of the most disengaging books uh, that I've ever read. It's very useful for standing my computer on uh, here when I'm doing uh, Zoom meetings and it's it's um it's dominated by studies in laboratories with student volunteers uh with animals rather than with people with big data sets with large-scale surveys it has almost nothing on what real teachers are doing with with their students uh in their schools so we felt there was something missing and then we came across an article by a father and son uh, both called Lawson, who got the research article of the year a few years ago for the American Educational Research Association. And, and they said, uh, 
we need to think about sociological aspects of engagement, not just psychological ones. We need to think about the environment in the school, in the community, in the society that engages or disengages our kids. And they pointed out that the handbook doesn't have a single chapter on poverty or anything at all about technology. And it's hard to imagine talking about engagement and disengagement without raising things like this. So what Dennis and I brought to it was a back and forth between what we saw the teachers doing in the schools to get their kids engaged in these schools across five states and what they shared with us and, uh, and, and what the sociological as well as the psychological literature was saying about what's, what's important for student engagement and what, is, what might be causing disengagement. So that, that, in a way, there is a lot of literature. There is a lot of professional development. It hasn't been getting any better, to be honest, on any large scale. Jal will know this. He's, he's, he's uh, talked about that in a different kind of way. Um, and, and so clearly we need something else in our perception, understanding and action that, that can make a difference. One, uh, one, one story that reminds me of is uh, Ron Berger, who's one of my favorite people on this uh, intersection and uh, listeners to our podcast will have heard him uh, a, a little bit ago. Um, you know, he says that he feels very um, disheartened when he goes into classrooms and he sees, you know, people trying to use essentially sort of like cheap hooks, like, you know, connecting a, a book to a recent pop artist or write about your weekend or whatever it might be. Uh, and he said, you know, in EL Expeditionary Learning, they have a project on the on the Constitution and they they pitched to fourth graders, look like you're going to become an expert on the Constitution. And when questions about the Constitution comes up, like your parents, your family members, their friends, like they're going to come to you. You're going to be the expert. And um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's you, you start to get at this. Uh, in your book, but um, and so maybe you could pick up on what I'm saying. But I, I feel like there's a difference between sort of like, you know, superficial engagement, which we could get by giving kids video games or sending them to the arcade, uh, and a kind of deeper in engagement. Um, and um, I, I see in your list of five paths things that are sort of pointing towards that deeper form of engagement. Uh, I can hear a book coming on jail called Deep Engagement or uh, something, so, something like, or a movie even. Um, but uh, the, the, there's a, a really important point in, in what you're saying. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is, is uh, three myths of engagement. So myths are things that are um, partially or wholly untrue. And uh, we identify three. They're not. They're not the only three. One is people who think the answer to engagement is um, is more technology, and we saw that in the early stages of the pandemic. Andrew Cuomo, and uh, yesterday's man. Now, actually, the day before yesterday's man, um, Andrew Cuomo and um, and Bill Gates were were saying, "Why do we need schools at all? We can have." We can have uh, schools without walls. We can have learning anytime, anywhere. And wow, haven't we learned during the pandemic that uh, lots of people just need to be with their friends. They need to go somewhere where their parents can go to work. Um, so 
So uh, th- th- there was an over-exuberance about digital earlier on, and I think now we're becoming much more measured about where we see the possibilities and uh, where the threats are that can actually create, in some cases, uh, and we've seen them in classrooms, uh, more disengagement where the texts are on the tablet and, and the kids are actually hypnotized by what's on the screen in, in front of them. They're, they're not misbehaving. But 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 they're 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 hypnotized, but they're not but they're not engaged. And fun is the other one. I think especially elementary teachers often like to think you know if you can just make learning more fun, then then we can get the kids engaged. But you know, learning about the Atlantic slave trade is not fun. Uh, my six-year-olds have been learning uh, about because I've seen through virtual learning. Uh, six-year-olds have been learning uh, about the abuse of indigenous uh, students uh, historically within within Canada and the consequences of that. We've been digging up bodies of thousands of students within Canada over the last thousands of children, uh, starved, uh, beaten, um, tortured, neglected. And uh, our six-year-olds, it, it's not fun. But it's important. And climbing a mountain isn't always fun. Doing your PhD isn't always fun. Uh, and, and so we, we need to think about engagement being, I mean, we're not against fun, um, but, but, but it has to, be, has to be more than fun, what we say. And, and the third one, which will probably get into some terrain that, that I know is important to many people of our ideological persuasions is, does it need always to be relevant, you know, relevant to your interests or relevant to climate change or Black Lives Matter or any other compelling uh, social issues? Uh, so so there, there are, um, it's, it, it, it's easy it's easy to take the basic idea of engagement and and completely distort it and and misuse it. And uh, so our book tries to dig into the issue, not really to give teachers another 95 strategies for engaging their kids, but but help them think differently about engagement than they might have been already. Hmm. Andy, you just... In your book, you describe the or talk about sort of the overarching narrative, if 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 I can use that term, of the book is you frame it as a quest. Why a why a quest? That 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 was obviously a de- very deliberate choice. Well, uh, first of all, um, uh, all arguments are a narrative. All arguments are uh, have a narrative uh, within them. So an equation is a narrative. I'm actually, when I'm doing workshops with people now, I ask them to do things like uh, give me an equation for the relationship between engagement, um, uh, achievement, and well-being. It frightens them to death until I say, basically, an equation is just symbols that are making an argument. So, so let, you know, let's get your maths competence and your maths confidence. So uh, uh, maths, is, maths is, is an argument, basically. Um, Bipolar opposites are a form of representation and narrative. It's not this, it's that. Uh, it's continuums are, and rubrics are, uh, are narratives. So there's, they're saying, well, you've got less of this at this end, but if we move over time, we can get, we can get more of it at, at the other. So our, our book is, 
is one form of representation. Uh, we're not saying it, it is or could be the only one, but it is uh, uh, t- teaching is very much an oral profession. And, um, and uh, teachers, uh, as a form of writing and as a form of pedagogy, um, narratives are very compelling. We've just been in Newfoundland and looked at the first prehistoric settlements, the first Viking settlements, and, and what were lost indigenous settlements of the Beotuk people who became extinct in 1829. And in every case, uh, the, the, the first way that people got access to uh, those uh, archaeological remains uh, was not by sending a drone over and uh, looking for changes in the ground, but actually by the by the uh, Icelandic uh, sagas and Nordic sagas, for example, about stories passed on uh, by the Inuit and other indigenous communities for generations. And these stories took people to the sites. And then at the sites, we had the science. We had the science that could carbon date, you know, what age these arrowheads actually were and where they came from. So narratives and science are not opposed to each other. They're, they're very much connected. And the story, the quest, the path is, uh, is one of a, a, a number of very common and compelling narrative forms. And they have meaning for Dennis and I, so they're a way, they're a way for Dennis and I to collect to connect our writing with our lives. So uh, some people like to choose sailing. Some uh, the, 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 there are there are lots there are lots that we can use. Is it the only one? No, it isn't. But but it, it's one that we found helpful for the material that we've got that does not do an injustice to the evidence. So we've got, you know. Weber and the Iron Cage and um, the kind of disenchantment of school life. There's a book called, I can't quite remember the title, but it's something like Love and Bureaucracy. And the essential thesis is schools will always be contested institutions because parents love their children and then they have to place them in the care of the state. And they want the teachers to essentially continue to love and raise their children the way that they would have. But that the state, by its nature, has to be impartial and develop objective mechanisms for sorting and so on and so forth. And that as a result, uh, you know, schools will never do really what parents want. And uh, as a result, there will always be uh, conflict um so tell us a little bit about like what re-enchantment might uh look like within a real school system especially since you say this comes out of the northwest so so many sociologists in different ways have talked about this talcott parsons talked about primary and secondary relationships for example so we know in elementary schools that they're best uh the child is with a single teacher who loves and cares for them knows them well uh the classes are not too large in the best in the best uh, systems so there is a a kind of surrogate homeland for for the child when they're in a good elementary school environment. Of course, the more elite and prestigious schools get, the smaller the classes become and, and the more uh, uh, 
the, the more authentic or real that surrogacy is. Then as they move on towards high school, they have multiple teachers rather than a single teachers. And the, the lost wasteland in between is junior high school or uh, middle school, which is what I did my PhD on, actually, the first ever study in the UK of uh, middle schools and what and, and whether or not they could provide a smooth transition between one and two. So, so I think you're right in saying that there is some kind of a, a, a perpetual, almost unavoidable tension here that schools cannot fully replicate the intimacy of, of homes at, at their best. But I think what we see in America and uh, what we've seen in England, what we're now seeing in Australia, and uh, what we saw for many years in Ontario, was actually the introjection of excessive bureaucracy into elementary school environments where they utterly don't belong. With with year upon year of testing in in America in uh, in, in in every subject, with test preparation, with standardisation, with prescription of uh, teaching formulaic three part uh, lessons, and so even if you accept the kind of universal tension that you describe uh, that I totally recognize, then certainly in elementary school, uh, excessive bureaucracy has appeared in a place where it utterly doesn't belong and is ruinous, particularly to the most uh, disadvantaged students in in our schools. In high schools, uh, what we've seen are all kinds of efforts to reverse this. We've seen um, we've seen Ted Sizer's uh, arguments in the Coalition of Essential Schools that no teacher should ever have more than ninety students to deal with because it's impossible to know more than to know more than ninety students. We saw the failed efforts of the Gates Foundation uh, to move to small schools, small high schools, mini schools, or sub schools. Um, but which was a structural solution, not a cultural one, because, you know, if you hate your colleagues in a big school, there's only one thing worse than that. And that's putting you in a hating your colleagues in a small school where you where you can't escape from each other. So if you deal with structure rather than culture, it will it will get you uh, nowhere. And there are many schools on the fringes. You've studied them uh, with within your own work that manage to escape from this or get around it. They become kind of safety valves for anyone else they put all the rebellious teachers there uh, who, who can't fit in in other places but we're still struggling to find if you like a more humane inclusive less bureaucratic uh, high school system uh, system-wide we have a few minutes left and and I want to take a bit of time to to talk about um, the Royal Society of Canada uh, policy paper that uh, you you help to author, which I think gets at many of these same things, sort of through some different, uh, looking in a different end of the tube, perhaps, around um, uh, children in schools during during and COVID and beyond is as a how you framed it, and still looking at engagement and, and connection. One, I'm wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about what you found, but um, perhaps more specifically. Um, one of the recommendations is you talk about taking steps to reduce inequity. And what, through your research or, or your observation of schools, what, what are you seeing that's working in terms of uh, fighting back against the, it seems to me, the encroachment of inequity in, you know, inequity is, is getting worse and worse and worse. Um, um, not just because of COVID, but perhaps accelerated by COVID. Well, 
what are you seeing um, that gives us hope in that area? Well, I think one of the first things we have to do is is look at the systems that have lower levels of inequity. There are some. The paradigm example, of course, is always Finland. And then people try to dismiss Finland on almost anything they can come up with. Uh, but, uh, you know, A, it's small, but then Finland is actually the same size as the average size U.S. state. And so most of what happens in the U.S. happens at a state level, not at a, not, not at a federal level. Uh, or they try to say it's homogeneous, uh, which it is. Um, but, but we have fairly homogeneous provinces in Canada, Newfoundland. I've just spent uh, two and a half weeks in Newfoundland, for example, which does not have a lot of racial and ethnic uh, diversity other than, other than the indigenous uh, communities. Um, so so but once you set those things aside, the thing about Finland is, first of all, you need equity in the society as well as equity in your schools. Um, it's very hard to create equity in your schools when you have manifest inequity within your society, though that is typically how many of our educational systems and governments in the last 20 years have tried to approach the work. And people like Diane Ravitch, David Berliner, many others have argued how ridiculously futile that, that actually is if kids can't even get their teeth fixed or their hearing done or their eyes seen to when they're, when they're very tiny, they're, they're already off to a, a raging uh, bad start. So Finland has the highest rates of public library use in the world for example, um, in uh, many of our schools in other parts of the world, we're getting rid of uh, public public libraries. Uh, in England, they're actually selling them off uh, in order to uh, create create revenue for local governments and local municipalities. So, so, so the first thing is you need an equal society. Wilkinson and Pickett, uh, epidemiologists, wrote two books on the spirit level, the first in 2009, which looked at the correlation between well-being and ill-being and other factors in society and the greatest cause of ill-being. And they say it's causal. It's not just a correlation. The greatest cause of ill-being in society is economic inequity. That is overwhelming the one. Um, two nights ago, I watched, as possibly you did, a magnificent uh, global uh, concert on um you know with all the great stars uh, you know elton john and uh, most of the others a lot younger than that uh to talk about inequity and uh, climate change and uh vaccine equity and uh it talks about people committing money and uh, building up activism and got got quite passionate about how the young will change the world nobody nobody throughout that whole evening talked about how 26 people, mainly men, own more than 50% of the world's wealth and pay practically no tax on it. And even Joe Biden's global regulation of 15% minimum corporate tax will not touch Amazon because uh, it only applies to companies that have more than a 10% profit margin. And Amazon's profit margin is smaller than 10% because it has high volume. And so that takes half of the world's wealth away right there. 
and, and, and the countries that are the more extreme versions of that, uh, the UK, for example, and, uh, and the United States, for example, are, are where those extreme inequalities uh, obtain. So in our next book on well-being coming out in, uh, in December with ASCD, Dennis Shell and I address these questions. And we say, we will never deal effectively with white privilege until we deal with wealth privilege. That, that there, is, there is no abandonment of white privilege without also uh, addressing, including our own, by the way, uh, without addressing our, uh, our wealth privilege. So, so it, it, uh, we haven't really got onto the question yet of what we do in schools about. In a, but the first thing is, is your society, your, your care system, your social supports uh, really have to be very, very strong in order to create more equity. You're, you're not going to have to give up that left of center academic card after all. <laughs> Uh, and it's also where the evidence is, you know. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I agree with you on that. It, it is also, you know, why why Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, by the way, and uh, Richard Branson of Virgin, uh, all have one thing in common: that they use their accumulated wealth of four hundred billion dollars. To propel themselves as ro- as as vainglorious rocket men into space, rather than paying their fair taxes, that will actually promote uh, public good. Totally agree with you. And there's a great journalist called, I forget his first name, Jira Hadass, who's written a magnificent book called Winner Takes All, is American, and who talks about how in the last forty years, philanthropy, TED talks. Uh, we'll talk about uh, nudging, brain science, sociobiology. They'll do this at Davos. They'll do this at Aspen. Even poverty. But they will not, because you can deal with poverty through charity, they believe. But they will not deal with anything that requires them giving anything up of, of their own wealth. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that the... Um that the um, original Black Lives Matter movement was very intersectional, if you go back and read there uh, what they were saying at the beginning, but that the way that it has played out in practice, there has been an emphasis on race to the ne- neglect of class, and it, it clearly should be both and, and more. Um, um, all right, I wanted to do one other thing before uh, Rod takes us to the lightning round. Uh, I've been going back through a lot of your uh, work on... Um, I feel very to... sorry for you. Yeah, oh, no, not ahead. at all. No. Uh, in, in all seriousness, I'm, I'm writing something, and uh, your, your writing has been very um, helpful as a guide to what um, we should be trying to produce. Um, so anyway, so reading things sort of starting with contrived con- collegiality and going up through collaborative professionalism. Um, so I had an I had an internal question and an external question. The internal question is, it seemed like when you wrote contrived collegiality, there was either sort of administrator driven contrived collegiality or there was, you know, sort of collaborative almost informal teacher to teacher cooperation. 
And it seemed like over time, a sort of third option emerged of a, a softer, gentler form of collaboration and coherence, which might be organized and led, but would be grounded more in teachers' questions and problems. So I wondered first whether you thought that that was accurate. Uh, I think that's a, a great question. And, you know, when we we didn't invent the concept of collaborative professionalism, it emerged, we think, in um, with the Ministry of Education in Ontario, but, but but we took it and we we developed it and it seemed to us to be more even than they thought it was. Um, but but uh, th that work uh, that was behind the idea of the book of collaborative professionalism was funded on a small on a grant by the Wise Foundation over one year, and so frankly we we began in a fairly shallow way thinking what can we do in a year, and and it was well, let's let's work on something. Let's work on something we already know most about and just provide some illustrations of it. And when we got into it, we found we knew a lot less than we than we thought we did. And um, and through our data, actually, that, that we had in five different cases and countries, it, it seemed to us, uh, I think you're right, in the early days, there were really like three things. One was uh, four things. One was no collaboration. One was collaboration that was kind of loose and fuzzy and went nowhere. Uh, one was collaboration that was over-regulated and, and uh, uh, top-down and actually created less collaboration eventually. Uh, and the fourth was what, we, that was contrived collegiality. And the fourth was what we call collaborative, collaborative culture, which, which we felt then was largely emergent and largely, not completely, but largely emergent and largely spontaneous. I think by the time we've got to collaborative professionalism, uh, what, what we see are two things uh, that really appear to make it effective and uh, uh, that are often divided from each other. And, and one is the relationships and uh, the trust and the uh, in interaction and the strength of the culture. And uh, I'm paying deliberate, not just accidental or hopeful, but very deliberate attention to doing that in a way that the literature doesn't say much about, actually, in, in leadership. And and the other, where there is a lot of literature, is, is about focus and precision. This is about what you will actually do, uh, what you will uh, concentrate on, what, this is Jim Spillane sort of stuff, what 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 tools what tools you will use, um, and um, and it's really the combination of what we call solidarity and solidity that that that, that creates that convergence that I think you're talking about, and that is definitely beyond uh, this opposition between informal and informal collaboration. All right, I have one last question, and then I'm going to give it to Rod to close it out. Um, I'm going to pose this in a deliberately provocative way. Are you a, a better person and is what you are calling for in the ways in which we should think about our lives and our relationships to each other, just not congruent with the sort of consumerist capitalist metric driven, uh, society that we, uh, that we're living in? You need to ask your question another way. 
So I totally get your question. Go on, try again. Well, it's actually not provocative enough. So you you can be you you can you can be more wicked than that. Come on, bring bring it out. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, you've spent your career writing about people working with each other in trust-filled, purposeful, relational ways. And then you revealed yourself at the beginning of the podcast as someone who thinks deeply about your own life and uh, balance and purpose and so forth. But meanwhile, at least in the US, over the course of your career, things have mostly gone the opposite direction, both in the larger politics and in the school politics around accountability. Is that frustrating to you? Uh, first of all, I don't only work in the US. I mean, I do work a lot in the US. I also work in Canada, in Europe, uh, all over the world, uh, actually. And um, in the early 1990s, when I was in Ontario, in Canada, uh, my uh, a colleague of mine, Lorna Earle, and I, uh, Lorna invented, invented the concept of assessment as learning, by the way. Um, uh, did a review of literature on the transition years, ages 9 to 13, which the government turned into policy. Um, and I'd only been in Canada three years. It was on every principal's desk, and it recommended three things. Under the only socialist government ever voted in power in history in Ontario by accident. And... Um, and the centerpieces of this were broad outcomes. There were about uh, there were there were about a dozen outcomes. That's all. Of a formative assessment and um, interdisciplinary uh, projects in, uh, if you like, Ted Sizer-like uh, groups and. Uh, this got some real traction and uh, two things happened. One is within 24 hours of each other, I received two letters in the mail because we got letters in the mail then. Uh, one accused me of being a Marxist uh, and was in letters cut from the newspaper and very threatening. And, and the other accused me of being a fascist. Um, so I, I thought probably we got something right at that at that point. But more important for this conversation, another colleague said to me, why on earth are you doing this? Because you know it's going to fail and, they, and everything will pull back and it'll go back to standards and basics and test it, which he did actually with an ensuing uh, conservative, conservative government. And I said, the reason we're doing this is sometimes the windows open and a lot of the time, the windows shut. And I said this to teacher unions, teacher union leaders. And you need to know when the windows open and when the windows shut. Never behave like the windows shut when it's open and never behave like the windows open when it's shut. And during that time, the windows open, you will create memories. You will create memories for people that nobody can ever take away from them. And in their schools, and in their districts, and in their countries, when those moments come around again, 
to to pass on those memories to others or develop them then 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 they will be there as a kind of capital if you like for for them to do it so i don't believe in utopia um uh i i i uh i'm always hopeful always optimistic uh quite stubborn and uh and i work with a number of systems around the world now i i'm president of this uh of seven systems two canadian provinces five countries uh, their ministers are all meeting tomorrow online uh committed to so they're all committed to broad excellence equity inclusion democracy well-being human rights and they are a movement they're not just a group they are a movement and somewhere in the world uh, and, and more than in a few schools here and there, but sometimes in whole countries, there exists the kind of things that we stand for with many others and want to promote and, and advance and that other people can learn from. I love that. Andy, last question. What's the best leg of the Appalachian Trail that you've hiked so far? Well, define best. Uh, they. <laughs> I'm leaving that to you. <laughs> It's all magnificent, and at first I hated the Appalachian Trail because I'm European, and and the thing about hiking in Europe is the views, and on much of the Appalachian Trail there's only woods for for mile after and an occasional pond or bog for mile after mile after mile, and I came to appreciate after several years that. It wasn't a worse kind of hiking. It was a different kind of hiking that was very meditative, where you focused on the ground. And that's the that's the first thing. It's a big existential thing that it that it that it taught me. Um, the for for me, the best sections are the most challenging, and and they're probably from the White Mountains upwards into Maine. They are where I broke my ankle in 2018 and needed a nighttime mountain rescue. Uh, they're where in my last trip in August, uh, because there'd been an unexpected lumber operation across a side trail, and I made the mistake of hiking that day alone. I ended up alone on the mountain with no tent or a shelter or a sleeping bag uh, for the whole night. And, uh, and and it was a little bit scary, but my God, it was engaging. <laughs> <laughs> and so we come full circle. Yeah. Thank you so and, much, Sandy. Yeah. And thank, thank you so much for this uh, great, uh, great conversation. Appreciated your, your time and your insights. This is Rod Allen. And this is Chalmeda. And this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools more fit for human consumption. Today, we were privileged to have with us Andy Hargraves. Andy, thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>